Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Well, this is uh, a book of Acts that we've talked about. And we got into the book of Acts because it encouraged us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But it is also a book, as all history books are, of transitions. That is, certain transitions are happening, and we find that in the book of Acts as well. And nowhere quite as clearly as we find today when suddenly the gospel finds its way into the lives of the Gentiles. Now, let me ask a question. Some of you um, may be thinking, well, what is a Gentile? Okay. Is there anybody here who has a Jewish heritage? Like, you know, you did your DNA testing. You know there's a, that you have somewhere in your past there is a Jewish background. Let's see. One, two, three. This is a church full, four in the back. This is a church full of Gentiles, okay? So Gentiles are every other nation but the Jewish nation. And what we look at today in the book of Acts is how the gospel suddenly became evident to all those others that we didn't have to come through the Jewish faith to believe in God, which is what the Old Testament pattern kind of had, but we could actually come through faith in Christ. And so that's where we are today. I know you just got seated, but I'm going to ask you to stand again for the reading of the word together. And we are in Acts chapter 10, and I'm picking up the reading there at verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, and here is what we read. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all, you yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, that is, God was with Jesus. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree." But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, be be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You may be seated. We learned four truths about the gospel in this passage, and that's just what we're going to unpack this morning. Four truths about the gospel. Your starting point, your needs, your belief, and your life changes, okay? So these are the four truths we discover about the gospel. Now, just to be really clear, the gospel we would believe is the same thing. You're going to see it Peter talk about it here, but it's the same thing that Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, therefore, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel, that God did that in Christ for our sake who are sinners. And we'll unpack that as we get into what you have to believe 
But let me just show a couple of ideas as we start out in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, of what we call the starting point. Your starting point is where you are today. Your starting point is where you are today. Sometimes, maybe all of us from time to time, had this idea that if we weren't good enough to come to faith in Christ, that that we needed to do something more. We needed to do some good works. We needed to engage in something. We needed to stop sinning long enough so that maybe God would accept us. But that's never the starting point. That would make tomorrow the starting point. Your starting point is where you are today, presently. And I find that because God uses this, uh, um, Peter uses this incredible phrase where he says, God shows no partiality. We find this in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, now let me set the context here again if you weren't with us last week. Last week we discovered that Cornelius, God had worked this incredible providential plan where Cornelius, who was a Gentile, um, a Roman soldier, he was a centurion, Cornelius wanted to know more about God, and God gave him a vision that said, go get Peter. Now, watch this. God always works sharing his message through another person. And so Peter is having this vision, and Peter discovers in this vision he's supposed to interact with Gentiles. And so he goes now, travels with these other guys to where Cornelius is. But when he gets there, Cornelius has gathered his friends and his family, and you can just kind of picture it. Peter thinks he's going to talk to Cornelius, and instead he talks to a whole room full of people. Also people that Cornelius had said, listen, I had a vision. There's a guy coming. You might want to hear what he has to say. So this is where they are. Peter sees this, and the first thing he does is he opens his mouth and says, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now that phrase, showing no partiality, translates this kind of unique phrase in uh, the Greek language, which is this. God is not one who receives men's faces. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Okay, here it is. To receive someone's face in that heritage means to show partiality on the basis of external factors such as race, religion, or nationality. In other words, you looked at the person and said, you can see this, right? Racism occurs because we see that someone else doesn't look quite like us, so we don't receive that person. The same thing can happen nationality, we perceive that someone is from a different part of the world that we're upset with, and so we don't accept them. Or the same thing can happen in religion. And here is what's happening here. God shows no partiality. What Peter is saying is it doesn't matter the race, it doesn't matter the religion, and it doesn't matter the nationality. God, if he is working through the gospel, is calling that person out of wherever he is to himself. Peter's statement means that God's judgment of a person is not based on any external factors. Now, let's pause there for a second. It is, however, based upon certain internal factors. That is, that you and I have a heart with desires that do not initially desire to please God. That is why James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man. There it is. But each is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to, to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. There's your picture, okay? These are internal issues, but they're not external issues. But every Jewish person back in biblical times would have believed they were external issues. And they would have been upset if someone else, a Gentile, for instance, or someone from another nationality, sought to come to faith in God. 
They didn't believe God was blessing those people. They believed God was only blessing them, okay? So Paul starts out, Peter starts out by saying, here's the starting point. God shows no partiality. Where you are today, whatever your nation, whatever your religion, whatever your race, God is saying, where you are today, that's where I'm going to start, okay? And it's really important because if we start to think we got to impress God in some way or we didn't grow up in the right heritage, like, we're going to miss what God is doing. God is saying, I'm starting with you where you are today. God shows no partiality. Here's the second idea. Your need draws you before you know all the facts. There's this really interesting thing about Cornelius that he was, we saw last week, a God-fearer. He was afraid, and he felt a genuine kind of fear towards this God. Even though he didn't yet have the gospel, even though he didn't understand the truth about Jesus, he was still seeking, trying in some way to... Uh, to, to fear God, to pray to this God that he didn't know personally, to, to give alms to others who were impoverished. Your need draws you before you know all the facts. Now, this is a very important idea. Just think with me for a moment. Sometimes we say things like, well, you know, good works will never get you to heaven. Okay? And that's true. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's not about works. It's about our faith, what we believe in Jesus. But I do think, however, that there is a point, if we're not secure in our good works, that you might find that the good works are someone saying, I know there's something bigger than me. I know there's someone who I'm responsible for, so I'm trying to do good things. It may be the beginning of a person thinking about God. So I recognize that it's not a part of the belief system, but this idea that we're trying to please this God that we do not know may be a beginning of, well, I'll just say it the way Augustine said it, because he said it back in 350-some A.D., which is a long time before I got there, okay? This passage in verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him can feel a little troubling, can't it? Like, wait, that looks like it is good works, Phil. I thought it was all of faith. But Peter himself is preaching this. In fact, one writer captured it this way. The early church fathers struggled with the question of faith and works in Cornelius. Look back at it again. If it's all about Jesus, then why is Peter saying, God doesn't show partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him? He goes on to say it this way. The question of faith and works in Cornelius. Perhaps Augustine's view offers as good of answer as any Cornelius, like Abraham, had shown himself to be a man of faith and trust in God. God was already working grace in him, and it manifested itself in his good deeds. Now God would show him his greatest grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit. I love that. Maybe you and I should be thinking differently when someone says, well, I think that, you know, if I do enough good works, I'll get to heaven, as opposed to immediately say, well, that's not what the Bible teaches, we could acknowledge that that could be the beginning of God's grace in their life, that they acknowledge there is a God or they wouldn't be doing that, but that is not it. And notice this in the text, because immediately Peter goes on to say something else. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter immediately says, it's great, that Cornelius, that you had an interest, but that interest will not save you. It is this that will save you. 
And the good news there is, that is the same word, euangelion, the word we get evangelism from, that takes place back in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is born. The shepherds receive this good news from heaven. It's the same word used back then, that God has this good news and peace on earth for men. It is through Jesus. So here's the idea. Your starting point is where you are today. If you don't know Christ, it's where you are today. Your need draws you before you know all the facts. That is, people begin to say, well, I want to do something good because maybe there is a God. Okay, that's a starting point. They see their need. And it's only the Spirit of God that can awaken that need, right? It's only the Spirit of God in them that will cause them to say, wait, I don't have it all together. Okay. But here's the third vital part of the gospel. Your belief embraces non-negotiable truths about Jesus. Um, I remember a number of years ago now when we had another pastor who was here back uh, over a decade ago now, but Pastor Jack, we were talking about the gospel and sharing the gospel at one of our Easter events, and we were trying to get as concise as we possibly could, and we said, it's what we believe about Jesus, and Jack insisted that we add the word historical Jesus. It's what we believe about the historical Jesus. Because he understood that everybody kind of interprets Jesus any way they want. And the gospel is tied to very definitive, specific facts about Jesus. And I'm going to teach you three of those here this morning, okay? And you're going to help me um, by saying them, right? So here's the three facts, and you're going to find them in the text in just a moment. Um, These two sections over here, I just want you to say, God sent Jesus. Can you say it? Okay, now, you guys aren't going to like this, okay? But you have the second part of this equation, okay? We killed Jesus. Just say that with me. Yeah, now, people don't like to say that, but I just want to remind you that when you begin to read about the gospel, you begin to understand that he's not on the cross for his sins. He's on the cross for our sins, okay? So, in his righteousness, he's going to pay for our sins. We killed Jesus. Here's the third idea over here. God raised Jesus. Say it with me. You guys are not saying that like you really believe it, okay? There's good news all throughout, but this one's really good news, okay? So one, two, three, say it one more time. That's a little bit better, but still not sufficient, okay? You do understand you're going to have to spend all of eternity shouting that, right? Okay, I'm just trying to warm you up. Okay, so here we go. One, two, three, let's say it again right here. Better, better, better. You're getting there, okay? Now, let me show you that in the preaching of Peter, okay? Because remember, Peter says, hey, you were doing some good things, Cornelius. Maybe that's the beginning of God's grace in your life, but that's not all of it, okay? You're not saved yet because your belief has to embrace certain non-negotiable truths about Jesus. And here they are. God sent him. We killed him. God raised him. Now, look at the text. Here we go. Acts chapter 10, verse 36 Peter speaks there and says, as the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news, there it is, the gospel, of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Now, now stop there for a second. Let me show you something, okay? If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 37. You yourselves know what happened. Look at verse 39. And we are witnesses, Look at verse 41, not to all people, but to us has been chosen by God as witnesses. And look of me at verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness 
That's why I call these non-negotiable truths. You, you can't shift these truths. You can't say, well, m- maybe they didn't really happen. They did happen. They got witnesses. Okay? And even today, if you go into a court setting and someone says, well, you know, we have DNA on this person, so therefore he must be guilty, that, even that cannot be as effective in the argument as an eyewitness because maybe someone left the DNA there. Maybe someone put the DNA at the scene of the crime. What is vital in a court setting is that someone saw the person do what they did, okay? And if they claim they're an eyewitness and there's proof that they're an eyewitness, that is, that shows that the facts can't be altered, see? And that's why I call these non-negotiables. Here's the first one, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, for just a moment, see this, God anointed Um, that word, by the way, just let me take you back to the Greek language for just a moment, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Notice that, because the New Testament was written in the Greek language. So notice how how the Greek shows up under the word anointed here. And even though you can't read Greek, you can kind of read the transliteration at Christen, it sounds like Christ, right? Because it is. Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ means Jesus the anointed one or the Messiah. That's how they perceive the Messiah that would come. He would be the anointed one of God, and they talk about that. What I want you to see is that God anointed Jesus. It's like God, it's like Peter is saying, God um, called Jesus Christ. He said, this is the anointed one. That's beautiful because it tells us God sent him. God didn't just say, Um, I see you guys have a sin problem. God says, I'm gonna send my son. This is the essence of the gospel. Jesus didn't, wasn't born uh, and just, it just happened. It was pre-planned before the foundations of the earth that when you and I were born and we would sin, we would need a savior. And God sends Jesus. God sent Jesus. This is a belief that is non-negotiable. By the way, Notice the text real quickly. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Go go back with me to John chapter 1 for just a moment. Let me show you this in John chapter 1. Now, if you're new to the Bible, just know this, that John the disciple, or John the beloved we sometimes call, is writing the gospel of John. He's a different character in the Bible than John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist is talked about in the opening chapter of John. And here we go. John the Baptist says this. By the way, we know that John the Baptist was the one who baptized Christ, but that expression of what happens actually doesn't, isn't revealed in the gospel of John um, in the same way that it is in the other gospels. So I begin reading at verse 29. The next day, that is, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming Toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the very moment of Jesus appearing in his public ministry, John the Baptist is proclaiming who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We sung about that this morning. You say, Well, yeah, Phil, I'm new to that. That whole blood thing, that's a little freaky to me. What is that about? Okay. But God said, from out the beginning of Scripture, is that for sin to be paid for, there would need to be a death of some, 
one or a belief in the death of that someone that even hadn't occurred yet, and that's why they would give lamb offerings, that God would send the ultimate sacrifice. And so you could be saved by placing your faith in this God who would send the ultimate sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that was often, the expression of that was often through a lamb that was offered. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus, the anointed one by God, the one God sent, he says, behold, the lamb of God. And by the way, Jesus dies on the cross around the time of Passover. Even that's significant. Because while lambs are being offered at Passover time in a temple there, in the temple grounds, um, Jesus himself is about to go up on the cross. The image there is like so powerful in the providence of God. It just wasn't any day that Jesus was crucified. It was on the day where they would celebrate and execute lambs to remember that God would pass over them in Old Testament times. That's the picture. In fact, just by way of a quick look into what Jesus may have been thinking. When he leaves the Passover, John tells us that he steps over the brook of Kidron. Josephus, a historian, tells us that there were sometimes so many lambs sacrificed over Passover at the temple that the brook of Kidron that would run down off the side of the mountain there from the temple would sometimes flow red with the blood of those lambs that were sacrificed. I don't know if you've ever been at the butchering of an animal, but there's a lot of blood, right? And when, Josephus says, some 200,000 lambs would have been sacrificed, you can just see the blood flowing down. Jesus, on the night he's begun, before he's going to be tried and crucified the next morning, steps over that brook that runs red with blood, remembering John's statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of Jesus is powerful because it communicates that he will not just prick his finger and die, but that he will bleed, that prick his finger and not die, but that he will sacrifice his life for us. This is the essence of the gospel. It's not just about Jesus being a good man and dying so that we might follow his example. It's about Jesus being a perfect man and dying. And that's why God anointed him. God sent him, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Here's the second part of that gospel message. Peter goes on to say that we killed him. In fact, it it just shows up like so quickly that it almost sounds assumed in the text. And we are witnesses, Peter said, of all that he, that is Jesus, did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He did it in the countryside and he also did it in the city. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. It's a reminder that if you and I had been there, we would have filled the crowd that cried out, crucify him. These are people who just days earlier had been saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there was a switch that was flipped. And that same switch exists in us today, the switch that says, I'll worship this God if he gives me what I want, but when he doesn't give me what I want, then I'm not going to follow him. And that's exactly what happened to the Jewish people. There he was coming in. They believed he would throw off the yoke of Rome off of them. He didn't give that to them. Instead, he overthrew their tables and asked them to humble themselves before God, and they all said, listen, we'd rather crucify him than keep him. 
And so they, the religious leaders, the Romans, all that were there, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And that gives us this incredible little lesson. When someone says, well, I'm going to try to work my way to heaven, here's the only thing we bring to our salvation is our need for a Savior. That's right. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our need for a Savior. Warren Wiersbe said of this little phrase that we looked at earlier, that uh, God does not show partiality, that God didn't show partiality because we all had the same need. We were all in the same place, regardless of nation, regardless of religion, wherever we came from, we were all in need of a Savior. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our need for a Savior. And that brings us to this next idea. God raised Jesus. But God raised him, the text says, um, in verse 40. On the third day, it made him appear, not to all the people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God. Now, for just a moment, put yourself back in that room. Okay, here's the room. They're in a, they're in a room. Cornelius is listening. He's hearing it. Peter's saying things like, you know, um, you guys know of who Jesus was. He was here for three years. You saw him. You saw him do miracles. You knew that it was from God, right? You, you knew that God had anointed him, and you saw that they killed him. We're responsible for his death, okay? And then he goes on to say, but God raised him. I, just for a moment, picture what that must have been like, because in that moment, they are hearing something they probably didn't know. They may have heard rumors of it, but now they got an eyewitness that says right here, um, God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It's like really clear. They're saying, okay, we, Jesus rose from the dead and we saw him. Not only did we see him, but we sat, we ate, we drank with him, we engaged with him, and we knew him because we'd walk with him for three years. Okay. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So let's just do it one more time because there's one more truth with the gospel. Here it is. Here it is. What do you guys say? God? Yeah, you got to do that better, okay? God sent Jesus. I'm reminding you, wake up for me here. God? There you go. We? You guys went back to sleep again, okay? Wake up for me one more time, okay? Let's do it one more time because I've got to show you the fourth principle. Here we go. These are truths we embrace that are non-negotiable truths about Jesus. Here it is. God? Okay, that's better. Okay, and here's the fourth truth right in the text. Okay, you ready? God forgives us through Jesus. So now we're all going to say that one together. Okay? And we need to say it like the resurrection folks over here. Okay, so let's do it one more time. Over here. All together. Let me show you that in the text. Here it is. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There it is. Okay? That's the gospel, pure and simple. You might have been trying to do some good works. Okay. That's just showing that you do recognize you're a sinner and you need God and you're trying your best, but you don't have the gospel yet. The gospel is this, that God sent Jesus, that our sin was responsible for the death of Jesus and that when he died, he, God raised him from the dead and therefore there is forgiveness of sins. Here it is in a simple statement. When a sinless man dies in the place of sinners, his death can pay their penalty. When a sinless man dies in the place of sinners, his death can pay their penalty. And that's why the number one issue that keeps most people from ever coming to faith in Christ is pride. 
we are prideful. We don't want to acknowledge that we needed someone to pay our debt. You know what it's like, right? You go out to dinner with someone. They say, oh, let me pay for that. And internally, you say, well, no, 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 let me pay for that. But there is one occasion on which you would say, sure, you can pay for that. Okay. It is what occasion? When you can't pay for it, right? Like all of a sudden you reach for your wallet, it's not there. Uh, that'd be great if you could pay because I don't want to do dishes for the rest of the afternoon, okay? So, so here's the picture. When we know we don't have the ability to pay, that's when we allow somebody else to pay. Most people are unwilling to go there because for them to say, I don't have the ability to please God, is for them to say, mm, I am truly just a sinner. When a sinless man dies in the place of sinners, his death can pay their penalty. I love that. Maybe you remember the old chorus. I don't know. It's, some of you won't remember it because you weren't living then, but it went something like this. Okay? He paid a debt I did not owe. I had a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take my sins away. If I can remember, it went something like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's it. That's the gospel. You and I owed a debt to God we could not pay. Jesus, because he never sinned when he died, pay the penalty for our sin. You say, that's great, and the whole world's gone to heaven, right? Mm. Look at the text again. Tim, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That forgiveness is only granted to those who believe. By the way, I love this. The Gospel of John uses parts of the word believe numerous, numerous times Throughout the scripture, it's the word that we also pissed off. It's the word we get faith from. It never once uses the word achieve. Okay? It's like John wants to make it really clear. It is about what you believe, not about what you've achieved. Right? Whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's how John starts out his book, too. Not only what Peter's preaching here, but how John wrote his gospel. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believed on his name. There it is, believe and receive, always together. Okay? It's always together. The forgiveness of your sins is granted in that way. I don't know about you, but there's times where I sometimes get discouraged, a little frustrated that I struggle with some of the same things I struggled with when I was younger. Um, you think you've kind of put them to bed, but all of a sudden they just wake up one morning as desires in your heart again. And, and, and I always come back to this, that I am not going to heaven on my perfection. Okay? I'm only going to heaven on God's perfection. If I had to die tomorrow and I was laying in a hospital bed and I had to think, I got to figure this out. What am I going to do in the next 24 hours? I'm, going, I'm crossing over on one line that Jesus Christ was perfect and that he died so my sins are paid for. God sent him. My sin killed him. God raised him. And forgiveness of God is granted to me through Christ. That's it. 
One final one, and here it is. Your life changes are evident to those who are watching. Back in the book of Acts in chapter 10, uh, this is so cool because there is no altar call here. You do understand that, right? Right in the middle of Peter's preaching, he doesn't even get a chance to invite them to Christ. They all come to Christ, and the Holy Spirit just overwhelms them. And Peter and the six other guys who are with him who are Jewish step back and say, what just happened? Peter, you never even finished your message. That's right. They became Christians, like, bam, right there in the middle of the message, okay? Uh, How rude, okay? Like, he didn't even let him finish, all right? Here's what I want you to see. Your life changes are evident to those who are watching. And those life changes occur in three ways at the end of this text. While Peter was still saying these things, he was in the middle of preaching. The Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, those are the Jewish guys who came with him, right, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, here it is, even on the Gentiles. Now, that's significant because Gentiles could follow the true and living God, like Rahab and and Ruth and Moabitess in the Old Testament, but they had to become Jewish proselytes to pull this off. None of this happens here. It's just wham. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is there, and these people are believers too. So here's the idea. Your life changes are evident to those watching. That occurs in three ways. Your power by the Spirit, your commitment to Jesus, your desire for the Word. And here they are. These are the kinds of changes that should occur in your life. Now, the text goes on to say here that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them and they began to speak in tongues. Now, let me just stop there. If you were with us a long time ago when we taught through Acts chapter 2 and the gift of tongues first occurs in the book of Acts, you may remember that right here I had someone who spoke Ukrainian. Right here I had someone who spoke French. Right here I had someone who spoke uh, Indi- uh, Bengali, and right here I had someone who spoke Spanish. And they all spoke it at the same time, right? And it was wonderful kind of confusion and chaos, okay? And nobody in the congregation knew what they were saying. Acts chapter 2 says that when these people spoke with the gift of tongues, everybody heard them in their own language. That's not an ecstatic utterance. That's not just... That's not just some kind of conversation. These are definitive words that someone that didn't know Ukrainian before can suddenly speak it. Someone who didn't know French before can speak it. Someone who didn't know um, Spanish before can speak it. They are known languages that had never been learned by the person who's speaking them. That's what makes this same kind of miracle here a miracle. I mean, I would have loved that spiritual gift when I was over in Ukraine. I mean, I couldn't even order coffee right, okay, because I don't speak their language, and I'm trying to figure out, is it Ukrainian, is it Russian, and, and my friend comes to me and says, I've been living here for 30 years, and that's not Russian, that's Ukrainian, because Ukrainian always has an I in it, the Russian language doesn't have an I in it. I said, great, which coffee do I order? He said, I don't know, I don't speak Ukrainian, okay? Like, uh, here's the point, right? Like, it would be great to be able to speak languages we never learned. Babel and all those other things, they'd be out of business just like that. This is that kind of miracle. And we know it is because the pagans, the Gentiles, sometimes spoke in ecstatic utterances in their pagan religions. This isn't that. And they know this is from the Holy Spirit. Because suddenly these people, I, I think maybe they were speaking, maybe they were speaking Hebrew and they were speaking it well. And the Jewish guys were saying, You're a Gentile. How do you know Hebrew like that? Where, where did you go to Hebrew school? I didn't. I never spoke it until right now. Okay. And here's the point that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how does that apply to me today? So important. Listen, 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 listen. We are always looking for the gifts of the Spirit. And yet Galatians 5 tells us 
that one of the most definitive truths about the fact that you are really a believer is not the gift of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That you and I would be revealing that. You say, what does that look like? Sure. That looks like a dad who's really impatient with his kids. Yells at them all the time. But when he becomes a Christian, that starts to change. It's like they're saying, the kids are saying, Dad, you don't get upset anymore. Yeah, because love, joy, peace, patience. That looks like the person whose neighbor's upset at them, who's angry at them, and, you know, they used to be angry back. Like, they used to, like, cut their neighbor's trees down and stuff like that, but now they don't. Now they plant trees for them. Because why? Because love, through the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience. What does it look like? It looks like a Christian worker who goes to work every day when everybody around him is complaining of joy, peace, patience. And he walks in with joy. And everybody says to him, what have you been smoking? Okay. Nothing. Just the Spirit is in me exuding joy. That's the power of the Spirit. And what I want to tell you is this, that those are the life changes that are evident to those who are watching. There are six men and Peter who are standing there saying, whoa, these guys just became believers. Yeah, because of the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit today is demonstrated in the gifts too, but specifically for all of us in the fruit of the Spirit. Here's a second idea real quickly. Notice their commitment to Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Here's the second idea. Uh, their commitment to Christ. And he commanded them, Peter asked the question, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, their baptism is identifying them with Christ. And he said, let's just do that right here. Like, no questions asked. Like, we know you guys are Christians. We're commanding you be baptized today so that you would make a public expression of the fact that you are a saved individual. That's what baptism is. It's me publicly declaring, it's you publicly declaring that I am a Christ follower. Not just that I go to Fellowship Bible Church, not just that I grew up, not just that I read my Bible occasionally, but I want everybody to know that I'm a Christ follower. When I was in Ukraine, my friend who was there, who's been there for years, said, Phil, in the early stages when we first got here and the Iron Curtain fell, this is how baptisms took place. We, when someone was going to be baptized, we would, they would dress in a robe of white and we would walk down through the streets to the river so that everybody would see. It just wasn't for Christians. It was for everybody to see. We walked down to the river. We would baptize them. He said, you know, in the early stages, he said, when people are converted here, they, 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 when they come to faith in Christ, they come forward, they stand up, and the pastor doesn't say, say this prayer with me. He just looks at them and says, pray and receive Christ. And they have to pray publicly in front of everybody. I said, where did that come from? He said, listen, in the old KGB regime, like you had undercover people and you wanted them to step forward and you wanted to know that they were Christian, so you didn't teach them how to pray. You just said, pray and receive Christ, right? And they had to do it right there. Like, and if they did it, you knew they weren't KJB officers, okay? Because they had now confessed Jesus Christ. This is it. When a person comes to faith in Christ... We're not ashamed of it. And, and we're not proud of something we are. 
But we can boast in the cross, can't we? Because we understand it's not anything we did, it's what Christ did. And then there's one final one. Here it is. There is a desire for what I would call more of Jesus, or desire for the word. Because immediately these people say to him, then they ask him to remain for some days. Now, we don't know how long Peter stayed, but we know this, that Peter said, sure, I'll stay. Why do they want Peter to stay? They want Peter to stay because Peter just preached the word to them, and they're saying, we want more of that. We got to have more of that. And that teaches us these three ideas that the, that, that your life changes are evident to those who are watching because of the power of the Spirit, because of the commitment to Jesus, and because of the desire for the Word. You want more of the Word. It's such a great reminder that that's where we want to be. It's also a good reminder that we don't do this to impress people, but other people are watching. Right? Other people are watching. Real quickly, here they are, again in closing. Four truths about the gospel. Your starting point is where you are today. If you came in today and said, Phil, you don't understand, God wouldn't love me based upon where I am. I'm telling you, your starting point is today, okay? God loves you right where you are um, without changes, just simply coming to faith in him. Your need draws you before you know all the facts. That is, you begin to say, if you've begun to have a desire to follow God, I'm telling you, you may not be fully there in the gospel, but you want to come to faith in Christ because the Spirit of God is doing that. You couldn't come up with that on your own. Your belief embraces non-negotiable truths about Jesus. We don't um, make things up about Jesus. We find out what the Bible says about him. We believe those things. And when you fully come to faith in Christ, your life changes will be evident to those who are watching. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that Peter gave the message he did to the Gentiles because that is where we are. And that's a message that applies to us today. We come to faith in you because of what your son did on our behalf, not because we've done anything to impress. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our need for a savior. And so we are so grateful that Jesus came, that he bled, that he died on the cross, and that the blood was applied to us as we believe in him. I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning that wherever they may be in their walk of faith. Maybe they haven't fully acknowledged where they're sinning. Maybe they haven't come to grips with the fact that they need a Savior. Wherever they might be, cause them to understand the great love with which you loved us, that you would send your own Son, and the great love with which he loved us, that he would die in our place. And the great love which, with which the Spirit loves us, that When we come to faith in Christ, he would indwell us. Lord, help us believe, trust, and obey. And we are grateful. Finally, Lord, help us live out the gospel to those who are around us, unashamed of who you are. May we say with Paul, for we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Help us walk humbly before you. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.